dismissed to Children's Church just out the back door there. If you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 15. We're going to be here this morning. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 15. Well, there are, are two different kinds of people. I'm convinced of it. Two different kinds of people in this world, probably in this very room. It's probably divided half and half, if I'm guessing right. Ones that love to debate and see everything as an argument. And ones that see everything in debate as a fight. And are crushed by debate. Yes? Yes? Nod? Yes this way? That's yes? Okay, you, you, you know what I'm talking about. I, I'm convinced that there are, there are two different kinds of people, and that's the way they see life. And normally, those two different kinds of people are married to each other. Am I right? Yes. Normally, that's true. Normally, they are married to one another. I know. I, and you know what? I won't even tell you which one I am. I think you could probably guess. But I remember being a newly married person and seeing everything as a debate and getting into an argument with my wife where it just crushed her, the argument. As soon as I, I, I gave the rebuttal, I, it, it, was, it was crushing. And I thought, what is this? I've landed on the moon. I don't know what this is. <laughs> How is it that I, I can't argue? But there's two different kinds of people. The ones that see everything as a debate. The, one, the ones that are, are crushed by debate and, and see everything as a fight and don't like to do it. The, the difficulty is, even though that's true of our marriage, there are times where we have to come together and discuss even some very hard things. And sometimes we even have to come to the table and lay out things that will very much are confrontational, where we have to get engaged in a discussion that even sometimes is a little bit passionate or heated. It's not comfortable, and confrontation is not always easy, but it is necessary Sometimes. This morning in our passage, Matthew chapter 10, what we're going to see and what we've been seeing over the course of the Gospel of Matthew is that the kingdom of heaven is one of confrontation. It's a confrontational kingdom. It, it really doesn't have any other kingdoms that it's allied with. It is coming to eradicate all other kingdoms. So it's necessarily confrontational. And we, as its adherents, as its citizens, are expected to engage in a fight. Let's look in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 15. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or staff. 
for the laborer deserves his food. And whatsoever town or in whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if the house if, if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Well, Jesus is, is preparing the twelve apostles to be sent out and he's commissioning them to go and do ministry. And in this whole chapter that we're going to be looking at, chapter 10, he is really preparing them and he's presenting them with the challenges that they're going to face in ministry. And he's equipping them very uniquely in this chapter. And as we've, we've seen already in Jesus' ministry, it's not going to be easy. He's telling them right out of the gate, this ministry that you're about to engage in is not going to be easy. And we've been prepared over the last few Sundays of just how difficult it is to actually follow Jesus, to be his disciple. We saw in chapter 8 that he, Jesus tells the disciple that people that follow after him often don't have shelter or have a place to lay their head down in or any kind of protection. And we saw even as far back as the Beatitudes that there are people that are going to be following him that are going to endure great persecution and great trial. And so in this chapter, we're going to see many more specifics on the apostolic ministry as the apostles go out and the ministry that they're going to be prepared to engage in, which will, will actually, it's going to tell us quite a bit about our own ministry that we should expect as we go out and engage the world around us. So this morning in our passage, I want to make just a few connections between the apostles' ministry and our ministry as we go out to engage. Things that are true of all those that are sent out by Christ. The first thing is this. Those sent by Christ are representatives of Him. Those sent by Christ are representatives of Him. So in the first four verses, we see there Jesus calling His twelve to Him. He calls His twelve to Him. Now, obviously, there are many people that follow Jesus, and many of them are even called and referred to in the Bible as disciples. There's 70 or so that are specifically called disciples from time to time in Jesus' ministry. But Jesus, it seems, has a particular twelve. Normally when we hear the term disciple, that's what we think of, is those twelve. But really the Bible is going to refer to them and set them aside more as apostles. Uh, apostle just means ones that are sent, as opposed to disciples, which are like pupils or learners. So these are ones specifically set aside by Jesus, these twelve, and that are sent out to do a specific kind of ministry. And it says that Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now this is important because as I touched on last week, what Jesus is actually giving them is the exact same authority that he has. We saw that in 935 where it says that Jesus was healing every disease and every affliction. And we're going to see more of that in just a minute. But suffice it to say for now that the disciples are given the same authority that Jesus has to go out and do likewise. 
And we also see that there's a, there's a few interesting things about the list of apostles that he lays out there for us. There are four times in the New Testament that this list of apostles are given to us. And there are some commonalities between all four of those lists that are given to us. There's some differences, but there are some commonalities. I want to explore those commonalities just for a second. First, Peter is always listed first. In the apostles' list, Peter is always listed first. And this seems to coincide with what we know about Peter to be true, that he was appointed at some point to be the leader of the apostles. That he was given a position of leadership amongst the apostles. We'll see more of this uh, later on in the Gospel of Matthew, but it seems as though he is appointed as specifically as a leader amongst the apostles. So Jesus obviously had them ordered along with their commissioning, and Peter is first and foremost. But second, amongst all the lists, Judas is always last. And I think we know the reason for that, but Judas is always listed last. And if you don't know the reason for it, he tells you right there in verse 4, he says, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Judas is always listed last, once again, because of his relationship to Jesus. Just as Peter has a relationship to Jesus in that he is a leader of the apostles, Judas is also um, listed last because of his relationship to Jesus in that he betrayed him. He was supposed to be on his side, and then at the last minute, he obviously handed him over to the Pharisees. He's listed last because his representation of Jesus is that he was a fake. He presented himself to be real and was not true. But then next, we, we see that they're sent out in pairs. Now, if you notice, if you look at the list that you can see there, you can see that they're named in pairs. You see Peter, and then it says Peter, and then Andrew, his brother. Semicolon in most of your translations. James and John, his brother. And then if we see the parallel account in Mark, Mark just flat out tells us that Jesus sent them out two by two. They're called apostles, and he, he sent them out two by two. And so the apostles are not only sent out, but they're sent out in, in pairs. And that's actually a really important detail because it helps us understand the passage as a whole that we're reading. The Old Testament law required two witnesses to give someone the death penalty. In order to give someone the death penalty, there had to be two witnesses. So Deuteronomy 17.6 says this, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So when it comes to the death penalty, it had to be established on the grounds of at least two witnesses. Two witnesses to establish the credibility of that claim. Now, if you understand the nature of the mission, that they're sent out in pairs, it helps make sense of verse 15, for instance, at the end of this passage that we're in today. It'll make a lot more sense when Jesus says, It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for the town that doesn't welcome the apostles coming in. Why? Because there's an effective death sentence, or we could say a stricter punishment that's given to the town that rejects the two witnesses to Jesus' authority and command over the kingdom as they present this to other people. There's two witnesses coming to them to establish the credibility of who Jesus is and His authority, and therefore if you reject them, that's much more serious. 
So they're sent out in pairs. And then last, something that's interesting about this list is that there's 12 in total. 12 is most likely chosen as an analogy to the 12 tribes of, of Israel. Ancient literature had a big interest in numbers representing ideas. So in a lot of ancient literature, numbers represent ideas. And it seems that, especially in the Bible, multiples of 12 represent a kind of governmental structure. And so the 12 are chosen as witnesses to Christ and their foundations for the, the new kingdom of heaven as it sets foot on earth, much like the 12 tribes of Israel were there as witnesses and, and uh, chosen to establish the old covenant on earth. In fact, Jesus is going to tell them in chapter 19, he says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The apostles, we see, even know that this number is significant because what happens when Judas betrays Christ and then commits suicide? In Acts, we see they replace him with a twelfth, with Matthias on the council, if you will, of apostles. The point of all of that is to say that the apostles are being sent out as representation. They are representing. They are ambassadors and they're given the authority that Christ has. And they're, they're ordered. Even the order that they're called out reflects a kind of representation. Peter as the leader, Judas as the betrayer. They're sent out in pairs to represent the authority to condemn those that reject the message and, about Jesus and His kingdom. And there's 12 in total to further represent this governmental structure of the new kingdom that's setting foot on earth. Paul's going to later say about the apostles in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, we are ambassadors of Christ. So he acknowledges that very thing. We are ambassadors of Christ. And then in Galatians 3.28, he broadens that to all of us. And he says, for all are one in Christ Jesus. So as the apostles are sent out as representatives of Christ in the kingdom, so are all who are in Christ. We are representatives of Christ and of His kingdom. The second thing that I want us to see, the second parallel between the apostles' sending and our own sending, is those sent by Christ are to engage in confrontation of the sinful world. Those sent by Christ are to engage in confrontation of the sinful world. So the disciples are being sent out to the world directly confronting everything that sin has touched. That's what their purpose is. They're going out into the world and they're confronting everything that sin has touched. They're going to engage people and they're going to confront people with the kingdom of heaven. And they're told by Jesus to do this in two ways. The first is through proclamation and the second is through demonstration. Through proclamation and through demonstration. So they're going out as representatives of Christ. They're going to confront the sinful world around them. And they're going to do it in two ways. Through proclamation and through demonstration. You see that in verse 7? They proclaim as they go. And then in verse 8, they heal. They demonstrate. 
Both of these are signs that their preaching is true. That's essentially what's happening there. They're validating their preaching. So Jesus is giving them uh, the command to go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. The same gospel that he was said to be proclaiming back in chapter 4, verse 17. That the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then he says, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go only to the lost sheep. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't even go to the Samaritans. But go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but these kinds of statements always make me a little bit uneasy. When I get to read stuff like that, it it always makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Jesus is going to say some things later on in Matthew that will seem really harsh when it comes to Gentiles. And as a room full of Gentiles, we should probably be interested in that. It, it, make, it should make us a little bit uncomfortable. What is happening here when we hear Jesus saying, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans? It should cause us to wonder why. I mean, the central message that he's telling them is what I'm sending you out to do. To proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and heal every disease and every affliction of all kinds and cast out demons and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's not for the Gentiles, much less the Samaritans. It's only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You can see, surely see why that, would, that should cause a room full of Gentiles to be a little bit nervous. It makes us all kind of seem like second-class citizens. So this statement here by Jesus is similar to one Paul makes in Romans where he says the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It seems to reflect the same priority that Jesus is giving here. That it's literally to the Jew first and then we'll see later on in the gospel that it's to the Greek. The reality is that Jesus' ministry has a very narrow scope. It has a very narrow scope. Now, was he the Savior of us all, Jew and Greek? Yes, of, co- of course he was. Did he die for those, for sins of all Jews and Greeks? Yes, of course he did. Is there any other way that a Gentile, or a Jew for that matter, can come to salvation outside of Christ? No, not by any means. Well, I think there are a few good reasons that he says this to his disciples. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's a few good reasons why he does this, and I think there are at least three. I'm going to list them for you. First, because of Jesus' own authority. The first reason he gives them this instruction is because of his own authority. So in terms of Jesus' public ministry, as I said, it's very narrow in scope. He's, He's here on the earth for three and a half years, and his ministry is almost exclusively to Jews. He tells us as much in Matthew 15, chapter 15, verse 24. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's Jesus' own words. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So we hear from Jesus' own mouth that God the Father, that's who sent him, God the Father has narrowed his focus only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
We also know that Jesus was commissioned, as we saw earlier in 935, where he says that he, that he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and healed every disease and every, uh, and every affliction. And now we see Jesus' disciples going to do the exact same thing. So we know that the statement that he makes here to them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, that's not to be offensive, but it's Jesus' way of saying to them, you only have permission to do what I have permission to do. That's what he's saying. You only have permission to do what I have permission to do. And Jesus has, as of that moment, when he gives them that uh, commissioning, he's only been given a restricted focus by the Father to focus only on the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this is going to change by the time we get to the end of the book. In fact, the passage that we've all, we probably, most of us in here know by heart that we've probably quoted for a long time, that great commission. Jesus' words change, don't they, as he sends his apostles out. But what does he say? He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then what? Therefore, go. To where? All nations. Right? So he, he is unleashing them in the Great Commission. Why? Because now the authority has, given, has been given to him. And he's giving it to them to go, now you have my permission to go to all nations. The second reason that I think Jesus is restricting their sending to just the Jews is because of salvation history. Because of salvation history. Consider for a moment how God has worked through history to bring salvation to humanity. How has He done it? Oh, He's done it through the nation of Israel. He's done it through covenant-keeping Jews. He did it through Abraham first. He did it through Moses, through David, so on. He's given it to them to give to the nation of Israel. He's worked th- and to the world. He's worked through the Jews to be a light to the Gentiles. So it's apparent that the expectation that salvation would eventually come to the Gentiles, but not right now, because first it had to come from, to, the, to the Jews. It wasn't going to come to the Gentiles through Jesus' own mouth, for instance. He wasn't going to be the one to proclaim it, but through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that was still to come, He would work, continue to work through the apostles to give the message of salvation to the Gentiles. And we, we see, obviously, in the book of Acts, that He'll open the eyes of the Gentiles, mainly through the ministry of Paul that we see there in Acts. Now, when we think of the Jews, a lot of us discredit the Jewish witnesses, people that were just, they, they heard Jesus' words and they ignored them and they were hard-hearted and they killed him and they put him to death and nobody ever, ever turned and, and that kind of a thing. But that's really a mischaracterization of the Jewish people. The first converts to Christianity, the reason that we're here today, worshiping Christ, were the Jews. They were the first, first converts. All 12 apostles, obviously. And then the vast majority of those that are sent out, the vast majority of those that wrote books of the Bible. Jewish. 
So it came first to the Jews, and then it came to the Gentiles. The last is because of practical missional strategy. Practical missional strategy. I want to illustrate this for just a second. When Andrea and I first moved here and bought a house in Tuscaloosa, the house that we moved into, the, the yard needed a lot of help. Still does, but bear with me. The yard needed a lot of help. And when we moved in, I was thinking, I looked at it and it looked like just a bunch of weeds and dirt and very little, very few sparse pieces of grass. You can ask those people that helped me move in. It was, it was shabby. So I turned to Philip Heinemann, who is our resident grass expert in the congregation. And uh, I shouldn't probably point you out. Everybody's going to come up and ask you for yard advice. Um, but he, I go to him for all my yard advice. And so I asked him, I said, Philip, I, I don't know. Is it, not, is it worth actually trying to do anything with this? Or should I just plow it up and just start over, kill it with Roundup and just resaw it? And he says, no, 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 it, it, it can be saved. But what you need to do is you need to get this kind of fertilizer, you need to apply it every so often, and you need to water it really well, and you do this, and it'll come back. Just trust me, it'll come back. And so I started to water the yard and just these few little sprigs of grass, and then everything else was weeds. And I, I started to water it, started to kind of poison control some of the weeds, and I started to uh, fertilize what looked like nothing, what looked like just dirt. And all of a sudden, it started to grow back. And grass tends to be kind of forgiving in that way. And it starts to then, not only does the, the patches that were there start to get healthy and thick, and they start to grow, but then it starts to spread across the entire yard, and it started to choke out a lot of the weeds that had grown up. So when it comes to God's apparent missional strategy, it's sending Jesus for the express purpose of waking up the sparse grass of the Jews. The Jews already had categories in their minds for the expectation of the Messiah. For instance, Passover and many other things in the Old Testament. They already had these categories in their mind as a need for the Messiah. The Gentiles had no clue about the need for a Messiah, much less a Jewish one. His ministry was helping the already present grass of the Jews grab on to the new covenant administered through his blood and then as they become the proper people of God and settle in under his rule and his reign then what do they do they become what they were supposed to be from the beginning which is a light to the Gentiles then they give salvation to the Gentiles which is exactly what we see happening in the book of Acts so, just as Jesus gave signs that he was bringing this new kingdom, the apostles are also granted the ability to do signs and wonders and, and demonstrate the authenticity of what they're preaching. Inevitably, though, the question is asked, and probably should be asked, well, if the disciples could heal people and raise people from the dead, and if I'm sent out just like they are, Shouldn't I be able to heal the sick and raise the dead? Shouldn't I be able? Why, why can't I do the things that the, that the apostles were doing as they're sent out? Why can't I heal the sick and raise the dead? And we, we tempted to think of ourselves as like Diet Coke Christians, that the apostles are the real Christians, and we're not quite the real thing. But I want you to notice 
that the authority to heal comes as a specific commission from Christ. He gave them permission to proclaim. That's a specific commissioning. He gave them permission to proclaim. That's a big deal because he told most people to shut up. He gave them permission to proclaim. He also gave them permission to heal. It's a specific commissioning. See, healing doesn't come from the disciples. You understand that? Healing doesn't come from the disciples. It's not theirs just by virtue of the fact that they're followers of His, in other words. It comes as a specific commission from Christ. So, then the question, could we heal the sick? Could we raise the dead today? Potentially. But it would no less come from a specific commission from the Holy Spirit at a specific time for a specific circumstance. And if you're thinking as you're in a funeral, is this the circumstance? Then the answer is no. All right? It's not. It's not. Paul even points this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where he calls it gifts of healings. Now, the ESV has gifts of healing, singular, but that's not right. It's plural. Gifts of healings. And the reason that that's important is because it's not the gift of healing that you just have and that you can go wave your coat over somebody and expect them to be healed or raised from the dead, much to the chagrin of the hucksters out there like Benny Hinn. There's no such thing as a gift of healing. It's not even in the text. It's the gifts of healings, which means that it's designated for a particular instance through a particular individual, perhaps, though we see in Acts that there were handkerchiefs that were healing people that Paul had touched. But it's giftings at a particular time for particular purposes. So it's no less a commission of the Holy Spirit to be given. The other aspect to note is that when Jesus commissions them in the end of the gospel, the commission that we all call the Great Commission, the, the commission that we take to apply to us, it, it isn't told to go heal a bunch of people. He says, make disciples. Proclaim. Teach them to obey. Baptize. Now, obviously, the apostles heal. But that's not the thrust of their commission. And by no means is the healing of people as prominent as their teaching and their discipling of others. Now, the point of what Jesus is doing by sending His disciples out into the world and ha is having them confront every aspect of the world that sin has touched. That's their job is to go out into the world and confront every aspect that, the, that sin has touched. This is something that we've seen a number of times in this gospel, is that sin has decimated humanity. It has brought about sickness. It has brought about death. It's brought about various kinds of personal sins that people engage in and really like. And the disciples are commissioned to proclaim and heal as a means of confronting 
the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of sinful humanity, with the kingdom of, the he- of, of heaven. That's what they're doing. I want you to think about, just for a second, all the ways possible they could have potentially demonstrated that the kingdom that they're preaching was real. Just pause for just a moment and just think about all the ways they could have demonstrated that the kingdom of heaven, what they were preaching, was real. They could have turned a staff into a serpent like Aaron did before Pharaoh. That would have demonstrated the authenticity of what they were preaching. They could have parted the waters like Moses did in front of the Jews. That would have spoken to everybody about the authenticity of what they were preaching. They could have told the future before the kings like the prophets did in front of the wicked kings of Israel that were leading them astray and into idolatry. But they didn't. What were they commissioned to do to prove the authenticity of the kingdom? They confronted the effects that sin has wrought on the world. That's how you know this kingdom is different. That's how you know it's not like the kingdoms that have come before. The commission that we are given as followers of Christ is not altogether different, believe it or not. Sure, we weren't given the same commission of specifically healing a sick person. At least not in the same way the apostles were. We certainly weren't given permission to raise the dead at will, will like the apostles were. But that being said, we do have the responsibility of demonstrating that the kingdom of heaven is confronting the sinful effects on humanity. We do have the responsibility as bearers of the good news to confront the effects that sin has wrought on the world with our neighbors. See, when you proclaim the gospel, for one, when you proclaim the gospel, if you're not confronting sin and the effects of sin, if you're not explaining how the good news of the gospel applies specifically and, and, and says something specifically about your sin, then you're not proclaiming the gospel. There's a refrain for sharing the gospel that has uh, become popular in our world. And I, and I think, I suspect that it started with the prosperity gospel preachers. I know I've, I've heard them say it a lot, and I think I've also heard it in plenty of pews that are not prosperity gospel pews. And the, the, the refrain is this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life as a means of sharing the gospel. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Unfortunately, that doesn't actually tell anyone why the gospel is good news. The gospel is good news because in Christ, the kingdom of heaven has confronted the wickedness of my own soul. The wickedness of my own heart. Our proclamation of the gospel needs to make clear that, friend, you are a sinner 
condemned to die, worthy of an eternity in hell. But God has made a way out by sending Jesus Christ, His only Son, to live a perfect life, to be perfect in every way. He then died on a cross and absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf so that you wouldn't have to. If you believe on the name of Jesus and you confess your sins, you would not face an eternity of hell, but an eternity of life with Him. So confess your sins, therefore, and turn to Jesus. Gospel proclamation is confrontation. By definition, it's confrontation. And the vast majority of us, or at least half of us, statistically, in this room, are probably going to be really uncomfortable with that. The rest of us are just going to be regularly uncomfortable with that. But that's not where we stop. That's not where we stop. As Christians, we should take up the mantle of caring for the sick and the poor. We should take up the responsibility of pursuing justice, real justice for the disenfranchised. We should speak out about corruption and champion the cause of those that are taken advantage of. This is seen when you simply just take care of a shut-in neighbor who can't mow their yard or rake their leaves. You simply go above and beyond for them, expecting nothing in return. See, you're communicating with words and with action that the kingdom of heaven that you represent pushes back against the effects of sin on this world. And that this, this kingdom that you're proclaiming has no place for death. It has no place for wickedness and helplessness. And you're communicating that, which I think is just as important as all those things. God actually cares about those things. That God actually sees you where you are. You're sick, you're shut in, nobody's paying attention to you, and God actually sees you. He sees you enough to send me to rake your leaves and mow your yard. It's not only proclaiming with words, it's proclaiming with deeds. That it's a kingdom of perfect justice. It's a kingdom of health and vitality and eternal life. So it's in both word and deed that we communicate the kingdom of heaven. The same way the apostles did. We communicate it to our neighbors. And we share this kind of gospel of confrontation. Not only confronting sin in your life specifically by proclaiming, but also the sin that's all around you in what we do. The last correlation here. Those sent by Christ 
are to trust in God's final judgment. Those that are sent by Christ are to trust in God's final judgment. In verses 9 and following, Jesus starts to prepare the apostles for their journey, and he's telling them what to take. He's getting down to all the specifics and the lists of what to take, and he tells them that they don't have to take any extra uh, things for their journey. He says, for the laborer deserves his food. In other words, the people that are around you, they're going to provide for you. But the question that has to be asked If the ones sent by Jesus are representatives of Christ, and if the message that they're bringing is one of confrontation against sin, then what happens if the message that they're giving is not received? And so he's going to dive into that, and he explains to them what happens, what should they do in the event that their message is not received. And we're going to see more about persecution next week, but, but what he says here, he tells them in verse 11, And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. And so he keeps using this term as he goes on through the rest of the passage of worthy and unworthy. He says, let your blessing come upon the house. And if they're not worthy, then let it come back to you. And it sounds like really confusing language that he's using here. But I think that it's really pretty simple. The word that he uses here for worthy is, basically means the same thing as deserving. It's the same word that he uses there for the laborer deserves his food. It's the same word. It's, it's, uh, it, it means worthy or deserving. And so he's talking about people that are friendly toward the gospel message. So you go into a town and you see you're to look for people that are friendly to the message that you've got, that want to hear it. They'll bring you into their home and they'll let you stay there. Now, um, you, you'll recall back in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, where Jesus tells his disciples, Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Jesus is basically reiterating the same thing to his disciples here. If you find who is deserving, who's wanting to hear the message, go into their house and proclaim that message and stay with them. If it turns out when you get in there that the household is less than accepting and and much more hostile, then what do you do? You turn tail and run. You shake the dust off your feet. Don't even take any pieces of that town with you. Just leave it all behind and go on to the next town. And he clarifies this in verse 14. He says, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. And then he says what follows in verse 15 is that there's going to be strict judgment for that town that you have left behind. In other words, when you go into that town, if they reject you, you not only leave, but you leave them over to the Lord to take care of. You trust them to the judgment of God. Now, when it comes to this topic, I think it can be a little bit difficult because on the one hand, we like to believe that everyone needs the gospel. We do believe that everyone needs the gospel and that there's no one that should be shut off from hearing the gospel. But on the other hand, Jesus gives the apostles and really us, if you go back to Matthew chapter 7, some very specific instructions on how to go about sharing the gospel on a few occasions. And he's been pretty clear from the beginning that there are people that we should not cast our pearls before, people he calls swine or pigs. There are people that, upon hearing the words of confrontation in the gospel message, even seeing the works that you do, 
that want to turn and attack you. I I don't mean they have some rebuttals. I don't mean they want to argue with you. I don't mean they want to debate the points. I mean that they verbally or physically attack you. Jesus calls his pearls before swine. But let's not forget that in the previous passage, Jesus told us to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That prayer should undergird our going. So while there may be people for which sharing the gospel is less than wise, or maybe we're commanded not to, there's no one that we can't pray for. There's no one that we can't befriend. There's no one that we can't serve. That we can't demonstrate the values of the kingdom of heaven, even in the face of adversity, that we can't. With the hope that one day their hearts would be softened to the point where they could, they could see with their eyes who Jesus really is. But ultimately, Jesus tells us you have to leave that to the judgment of God. How does this apply to us? What does this actually mean for us? Well, it's, I think it's difficult for us to understand that the gospel message is by its nature confrontational. That you're confronting sin. That you're confronting sin in the person and you're confronting the sinful effects in the world around them. Yes, we're going about sharing the gospel and we're doing so that people can see what the kingdom of heaven is actually like. They can hear with their own ears. They can see with their eyes what the kingdom of heaven is actually like lived out in its citizens. But the reason that it's confrontational is because what Jesus says in John 3.19 The light has come into the world And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is the reason that it's confrontational. Because a number of people are not comfortable living in a world that they see is fallen. And they don't have a solution for it. So when you tell them, yes, indeed, the world is fallen... And you're part of the problem. It's doubly confrontational. And when you tell them there's a solution that's outside of themselves, now it's triply confrontational. Not only do I live in a fallen world, not only am I part of the problem, but I can't be part of the solution. Believe it or not, people don't like to hear that. But there's two confrontational sides of the same coin that we're offering. The first is proclamation. We have to do this. It's commanded. There is no no room for Christians who are uncomfortable and unwilling to share the faith that they have. You may say, "I'm I'm a Christian, I believe in the good news of the gospel. I don't know about the sharing the gospel thing. I, I, that's, that's strange to me. I don't know what you mean. That's not what it means to be a Christian. That's not what it means to celebrate the good news. Proclamation of you are a sinner and worthy of an eternity in hell and Christ came to give you a way out has to be our mantra going forward. 
But we can't stop at proclamation. We must demonstrate the truth of the gospel as well. We're confronting all the areas of sin that li- or of life that sin has touched. But you know what's funny about this? This is the place where people usually get burned out. The vast majority of the time, you could tell somebody, go share the gospel. They go share the gospel with 100 people, 100 people reject, and they could share it with 101 people, and they wouldn't care. But you tell them to go serve without being thanked. Or worse, serve and be griped at. How long can you do that? How long can you serve without being noticed? How long can you serve without being recognized? Called out. Patted on the back. This is where people normally get burned out because they don't get praised. See, we can't heal the sick. We may not be able to heal the sick like the apostles did, but we we can care for those that are sick without expecting payment in return. Without expecting pleasantries. Without expecting thank yous. Without expecting pats on the back. We may not be able to raise the dead, but we can care for the dying and for those that, are, that have suffered loss without expecting a, a thank you. See, miraculous works, like the apostles did, are not the only signs that the kingdom of heaven has come. When we choose to engage in this kind of holy confrontation from proclamation and demonstration with people that are affected by sin, then we're demonstrating that the kingdom of heaven has actually come. And it has made a difference in my life. In Cain and yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for this gospel. We thank you that you have penetrated through the stone of our own hearts. That we could maybe just get a glimpse of who Christ is. That we may open our mouths in praise and thanksgiving for what he has done. Lord, I pray simply for faithfulness. For all of us, myself included, faithfulness in seizing gospel opportunities. Faithfulness in demonstrating to others that I believe in this gospel and that it makes a difference in my life and what I actually do for you and what I expect in return. That I can give without payment since it was given to me for free. In Jesus' name, amen.